Welcome to Garden People with your host, Jill Sowards of Violet Air Studio. Join us each season as we speak with your favorite garden people, designers, florists, growers, naturalists, chefs, artists, and more about how gardens have shaped their lives and inform their work today with seasonal tips, expert recommendations, and lots and lots of plants. To learn more, go to our website at violetairstudio.com. You'll find episode information, our seasonal journal, class list, and seed offerings. Everything you need to start your own garden story. Rebecca McMacken is an ecological gardener, a Loeb Fellow at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, and former director of horticulture for Brooklyn Bridge Park in New York. She writes, lectures, and teaches on ecological landscape management and pollination ecology. In these spheres, she brings an infectious enthusiasm alongside an abiding commitment to ecological vitality and urban biodiversity. Rebecca understands plants and their pollinators, but she also understands people and how we can best invite them into the garden. This is helped by her exceptional ability to synthesize and share important information about our world. Her newsletter is an indispensable part of my learning, a go-to for international roundup of important articles and ideas, all framed by her optimism, humor, and seriousness of purpose. This interview was recorded in the last weeks of her directorship, and it was a pleasure to speak with her at this time of transition. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me on Garden People. It's wonderful to have you. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks, Jill. And so I wanted to begin by just asking you to describe yourself and your work, and then also what you will be doing very shortly. Sure. So I'm director of horticulture at Brooklyn Bridge Park, and we are a post-industrial, brand new park on the coast of Brooklyn that really prioritizes wildlife habitat amidst the millions of people that visit the park in the biggest city in the country. And I've been here for ages and ages, ever since the park opened, and the park was completed in December, and I am leaving the park at the end of this month, which is both terrifying and thrilling, because I'm going to go to Harvard and do a fellowship there, really looking at ecological repair and then also communication around ecological horticulture. Can you describe what you mean by ecological horticulture? I know you are an ecological gardener and also maybe describe a little bit about some of the communications, why that will be a focus of your work. Sure. So ecological horticulture is kind of a a necessarily fancy term. (laughs) It can just be like gardening for wildlife. And it's a garden practice that really recognizes that plants are the foundation of much larger and complex systems of wildlife that can thrive in our gardens. And so we use the plants both to create beautiful gardens for ourselves, you know, that we don't want them to be a wild mess. They need to read as cared for and read as gorgeous to people, but also provide quality habitat for migrating birds and moths and beetles and mushrooms and all of the various organisms that traditionally and traditional, especially formal horticulture, were kicked out of gardens. And so it's a real shift in thinking about gardens as a place to welcome in wildlife from a tradition that historically has kept wildlife specifically out of gardens. Right. And then in your communications work, what are you hoping to study and bring to the public through that? Well, it's going to be a surprise to all of us. I'm I'm really (laughs) trying to stay open to the world of communications, but, you know, I really love talking about this stuff. And I think that, especially at Brooklyn Birch Park, we've really discovered some methodologies that seem to really work. And it's my job to take that information and share it as broadly as humanly possible, because we believe that the more people do this, 
the better we can, you know, stave off the insect apocalypse, et cetera, as well as provide like literally better lives for the gardeners who are doing this work and people who are doing this work. And so I'm interested in figuring out better ways to get this message out to people. And I hope that no one at Harvard tells me I need to start a TikTok account. That's not what I want to be doing, but I am interested in writing. I'm interested in, I don't know, who knows what the future of communication really holds. I love talking to people on podcasts. I love helping others amplify their messages, you know, through a newsletter that I curate. And so anything is on the table, but I just think that there's so many people who are interested in doing this work and what they lack, what we lack are instructions and information. And so I'm trying to facilitate those connections and, and just try and get that information out there. Oh, fantastic. Well, I am an avid reader of your newsletter and follower of your, your speaking engagement. So I can't wait to see that more widely accessible. That's very exciting. And so what made you interested in horticulture and how did you make your way to Brooklyn Bridge Park? Oh, that's a, that's a, <laughs> it's a lifelong question. I know, right? Like how did any of us end up here, right? It's, it's such, everybody has a funny story. It's not like I went to school and a guidance counselor told me I to know. like become a gardener. That's never happened. It's usually they tell you not to do that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But I grew up in Connecticut in a rural area on a hard hobby farm. And so gardening was something that I did. My first garden was when I was six years old and it was just something that we did. And it wasn't something I thought of as a career. It wasn't something that I could see myself doing. It was like an invisible thing. But I was also really a wild kid in that I had a lot of freedoms that my own son is absolutely not allowed to like go off into the woods for the day, for example. And that really allowed me to develop an intimate connection with nature that I think I've carried with me throughout my entire life. And again, it was completely unrecognized to me as like a teenager or young adult as any sort of benefit. And it wasn't until I was trying to like recover from academia, from doing a master's degree in biology that I started gardening just like as a side job. I was like teaching yoga and gardening. And I thought both of these things were kind of fun, but not for serious people, that this was just like a good way to spend the summer. And I realized when I was gardening that this was fascinating work that was so important and beautiful. It was also, I needed like physical labor at that time in my life, which I think a lot of us really do like sitting at a desk can be, you know, backbreaking work. And so that was wonderful, but also as a very nerdy person, the continual experimentation of gardening just really appealed to me. And then researching all of these organisms and realizing about their medicinal uses, their histories, their threads in with colonialism and the political context these plants came from was always absolutely fascinating. And then once I became a professional gardener and started getting into pollination, I think a lot of, a lot of ecological gardeners get sucked in through bees and just like, or butterflies and start watching these flower visitors, that also just opened up this whole world. And I think that's one of the things about horticulture that I find just so, so appealing is that there's constant worlds and just like complete universes. Like say you discover nectar ecology tomorrow, you could spend the rest of your life studying that and then observing it in the field and making like total novel observations that nobody has seen as a gardener you're in the best possible position to have these experiences that you know researchers can only dream of 
So yeah, that's really what happened to me. It's how I just got into it and how I really, I think I recognized the potential of this work ecologically and as this wonderful and healing practice for people as well. Yeah, yeah. Myself, especially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, how did that figure in your own experiences? I think that is definitely something a lot of people are surprised by, like how deep and immediate almost that healing and again, this, you know, belonging, all of that, that experience can be in the garden. Yeah, I mean, I was a wild teenager. I was uh, maybe an out of control teenager. <laughs> you talk to my parents, but I had a lot of fun. And I was, you know, out at night dancing and working in art and with drag queens and just, it was a very fabulous, very unhealthy existence and, and fundamentally meaningless to me in my you know, I'm sure there's many people who like live fulfilling lives in those realms. But for me, I was always looking for something more important that really connected me to others. And I felt fundamentally alienated. Now that I'm much older, I can look back and name those, those feelings. It was disconnection from community, not feeling useful in the world, like fundamentally just feeling like, what am I doing? I'm just floating around, like making myself happy. That's not like... For me, that wasn't a fulfilling existence. And I think that the thing that people respond to so much about horticulture and then about ecological horticulture in general is that you are connecting to these, again, like entire universes with these fascinating and charismatic tiny characters and you're helping them, right? You're like, you're actually a very important person in their lives and they become very important in your life and you develop this reciprocal relationship that is very fulfilling in ways that I certainly as like a teenager in the 90s ha didn't have and it was just the most important thing and even now like when I go out in the garden and I get sucked into watching a butterfly or watching a bee you know it makes me feel small in the most comforting way and it, especially when the world is like so rough and tough and fascism is on the march yeah. and like you don't know what to do it can be like such a wonderful place of respite to just fall into those non-human worlds and and realize that there is a place that you can make a difference mm -hmm. yeah absolutely it's amazing how I don't even know the size just just kind of pure science but the size of like having a small garden space that has flowering plants in an otherwise not flowering space, you know, that, that can really, you know, and pollinators show up immediately. Like, it's sort of amazing that they're all out there looking for you. <laughs> so true. I love to tell the story of the American lady butterfly that we have in the park. And we've had it for ages and we planted lots of Antenaria species, which are its host plant. It has a few, quite a few host plants, but it loves Annapolis. It loves Pearly Everlasting. And we knew that it was a host plant. We didn't know it was its absolute favorite. But when we brought in the plants and we opened the box, the butterflies literally materialized out of nowhere. <laughs> and in order to plant them, we had to brush the butterflies off of the plants in order to get them into the ground. And when we put them in the truck and drove them down the greenway, there was a cloud of butterflies following the truck. And so even in a small space, this wasn't like... We weren't utilizing, you know, all of Brooklyn Bridge Park. This was maybe four boxes of plants. Yeah. And so it really does show that these, these animals are waiting for you to help them, right? Begging for us to do this work. And so it really is in, on small scales. Douglas Tallamy is absolutely right. Even on these small scales, it really makes a huge world of difference. Yeah, yeah. And wonderful to be able to have a hand in it. I think in some ways it's what makes this 
unique as humans is our ability to observe and plan. And sometimes we don't use it for the best purposes, but in this way we actually can. And yeah, really work with mother nature in a way that, that, yeah, it's almost like we're meant to do. Exactly. Right. Like this is our historical role as people, right? This is what, and then there's some very unhealthy cultural elements (laughs) that have, you know, destroyed those connections for quite a while. But I always do feel that, right? Like, I feel like this is what I'm I'm meant to be doing. I'm meant to be having these relationships. I'm meant to be supporting these animals and, and plants and they're supporting me as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and can you describe Brooklyn Bridge Park a little bit, the sort of size layout sure. and kind of the salient features? So Brooklyn Bridge Park is part of this movement, which is post-industrial landscape architecture. And that movement looks at, especially in cities, these old industrial landscapes and reclaims them for public space and for green space. And it happens all over the world. Ours is on reclaimed shipping piers. And it's a mile and a half long. It's absolutely massive. It's 85 acres. And years ago in the 1950s, the piers were built by the Port Authority, but they fell into disuse almost immediately because of container shipping and and the way that the land was built. And they were just warehouses for decades. And the neighborhood recognized that they were going to be developed and organized to turn them into public instead of private space. And so it took another two decades to figure it out. But eventually in the 1980s, they started planning park and then they started building the park. And then in 2010, the first section of the park opened, Pier 1 and Pier 6. And then we've been building it ever since. And so some people argue that it's the world's largest green roof because the entire park is built on top of these massive slabs of, of concrete. And often they are out jutting over the water, these like three to four acre rectangles, and they're suspended on wooden pilings that hold up the park. Those are the outboard of the park. And then there's the uplands, which is a very narrow ribbon of land that runs the length of the park as well, but it's on land so we can build up, which we often do as well. But yeah, it's, it's just been finished. It's, it's chic. It's wonderful. It was designed by Michael von Balkenberg and Associates, and they do a lot of a lot of coastal, a lot of environmentally and climate change conscious design and post-industrial landscape design as well. And yeah, it makes our work such a pleasure when the context of the gardens is beautiful and neat and clean. It means that we can be really wild and messy and like, and really push aesthetics, right? I think that that's one of the things that we do really well is try to show people the beauty in gardens that have levels of ecological functionality that you couldn't have in like a parterre garden or a topiary garden or an annual bed. Like we try and change what looks beautiful to people and having this incredibly stunning park is a great way to do that. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny hearing you say that. I think I don't realize that that is so significant. The idea of having like the neat container that allows you to have, it's even, even almost reminds you of kind of the Gertrude Jekyll style of the Lutins paving, right? Is really narrow and then it sort of spills out. And it also, the way it trains your eye and sort of, you know, you see something beautiful, you see it beautifully done. You say, oh yeah, it's actually like whatever the planting is kind of spilling over or being, you know, kind of wilder than you'd expect. Yeah. It's a really wonderful. Yeah. Mount Cuba calls that a cue to care, right? And we call, always talk about a hard edge. Like if you have a hard edge, you can get away with a lot of wildness. So even a lot of our meadows will have like a good clean edge of mulch in the front. And then in the back, we can be a lot more wild. We call that the garden mullet. (laughs) Party up front. Yeah, I mean, party in the back. Yes, yes. Business up front. Excellent, excellent. (laughs) Very true. And since we're talking about the development of the park, can you explain a little bit about the funding structure and what that means 
totally. kind of what you can do and also any limitations that yep. it brings? So it's incredibly unusual and wonderful and controversial and rightfully so. The 10% of the art park is earmarked for revenue generation, which means that we own land that hotels and skyscrapers and office buildings and restaurants are built upon. And they pay us money in order to do that. And that allows us to have this park. More than anything, this park has a very high operating budget because we're trying to keep it afloat on those. And we spend the vast majority of that budget literally redoing the wooden pilings, over 10,000 wooden pilings that are underneath the park. And so that's why we need that money. But still, we are a well-resourced institution. And especially as an ex-parky who used to work for the Parks Department, it's incredible to work for a place that, you know, if my shovel breaks, I can just buy a new shovel. And I like to think that we're not a very wealthy park, but actually the rare properly funded public yeah. park. And how unfortunate it is in the richest country in the history of the world that public parks and of course all other public resources as well are not better funded. And so we really think about, you know, what we can do as a public institution. I, I consider the role of public servant. I take that really seriously. What we can do for the people who come and visit the park, as well as the people who work in the park, but also the broader horticulture community and the broader New York City parks community. How can we use our resources to support them as well? So we do a lot of knowledge sharing, you know, and we hope to do more education and stuff like that in the future. But that's a big part of our work as well as thinking about how we can spread all the resources that we we have here. So it's hard to think of drawbacks. Honestly, it's yeah. nice to be properly funded. Yeah, yeah. Have there been projects that you had to sort of, how does that balance of making sure that it is, you know, still a public space and not just for butterflies kind of? Oh, totally. Yeah. You know, I think those things really work together seamlessly. And there have been, so New Yorkers, like your classical New Yorker, thinks of a park, they want a tree and a lawn and a bench like yeah. that's it and maybe a basketball court or something like that and like that's your park a water water fountain yeah. and so anything after that is just wonderful I remember one time someone complained to me that the flower field we have a half acre all native wildflower flower field and it's surrounded by these massive lawns and this jogger came through and just was like why isn't this a lawn? This should be a lawn. And I was like, dude, <laughs> look around you. There's like literally lawn, empty lawns everywhere, but you can't make everyone happy. But the vast majority of people really appreciate not only the gardens and like this gorgeous planting that MVBA has done and that we, you know, care for and update, et cetera, but also all of the wildlife that are attracted to those gardens. One of the most exciting things about this project is introducing people who wouldn't normally choose to go stare at a flower or like chase around a butterfly, introducing them to those interactions and even like spontaneous ways, right? I think yeah. I've heard from so many different researchers that the moment that they knew they were going to study ecology was that they picked up a log and found a there's always this like new story, origin story. Where, like, <laughs> yeah. It's like a discovery. And the designers, MVBA, tried to design this park so that there's like pathways that kind of swerve through the woods and they mimic the experience of hiking on a path. But of course, these are accessible and they're safe for people. They're well lit at night. And so, but still, they really tried to design in that element of exploration and awe and reveal. And so we've taken that 
and then tried to like hide Jack in the pulpits and other really fascinating and wonderful plants around corners where again, people can discover them on their own, right? We're not trying to show them to people. We're trying to like take those folks who are inclined to pay attention and have them have their own experience of discovering these things for themselves. Yeah, that's so wonderful. It's such an important balance because you're right. It's like the, I've lived in New York off and on for a number of years. And, and I remember, especially one long winter, like tens of millions of people came to the Great Lawn on like the first warm day in May. Of course, it got cold right after, but it was like, it was like, you know, the news stations were there because yeah. everyone just like spills out and looks for these, this common space. So yeah, if you can sort of also pop in something that's, you know, novel and it's really special to just have like those little gifts to people almost, you know. Totally. So we have uh, freshwater wetlands at Pier 1. And the gardener there, Pavel, is an incredible naturalist. And he has been studying the ecology of that site in the entire park for years. And this year and last year, we've been focusing on fireflies and like, how do we encourage fireflies? How do we help foster this really magical experience for people and wildlife? And so last night, he went out onto the lawn next to the wetland and he found just an absolutely stunning display of fireflies. Oh. And then all of these people just enjoying them, right? Yes. And it's and it's also funny that it's the weekend of 4th of July and fireworks and that there's this like natural display happening. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that's what it's all about for us is trying to invite people to experience these natural wonders and then in, and invite those natural wonders into an otherwise hostile environment, right? Yeah. Like these animals are are going to come through this land or they're going to use this land. They've evolved to be here, especially migratory animals. And it's up to us to figure out whether or not we want this land to be welcoming or incredibly hostile. And so we're just picking out these different organisms that we happen to like, and then trying to figure out how to make them happy and what they need. Is it like literally wet leaves? And that's yeah. what we've been trying to provide <laughs> for the for the fireflies. And so it's wonderful to see this stuff like working. And then to see people experiencing it is just heart, you know, growing kind of work. And finding it without having to do like a, you know, announcement on the website kind of, right? Like people are already there. (laughs) Yeah, like a selfie. Right, right. Like, you know, and I love that he went out to observe the fireflies and he like ends up observing the the New Yorkers. (laughs) (laughs) In their natural environment. How sweet. So a few ecological gardening questions for you. And one is, if you see a pollinator visiting a flower, what does it matter if we use sort of natives versus non-natives? How might we think about nectar and that sort of thing? Sure. So it's always important to remember that these organisms evolved together, right? Mm -hmm. And they've been working together for thousands, if not millions of years. The whole reason that we have flowers is because insects mostly, but sometimes other organisms have shaped them into like whatever they want, right? Like flowers are literally the manifested desires of pollinators. And like, you can't look at an iris or a rose without, for me at least, I'm always like thanking the bee or the moth who's responsible for these things (laughs) or like the scent of the lavender, right? It's like this amazing and ancient connection that I think really needs to be respected. And so, you know, sometimes online, there's a lot of folks who love to tout the benefit of exotic plants 
to support especially native bees, right? That's right. the kind of conversation that I see going on in social media right now. It's usually around dandelions. There's like dandelion words of like, should we keep them? Should we remove them? Da, 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 da. And I think that my official position is that when there are not native wildflowers, these exotic plants can fill the void and provide like life-sustaining sustenance to the pollinators that don't have their, have had their habitats really destroyed, right? Yeah. But in general, it's absolutely critical to provide these native resources to these animals wherever, wherever possible. When you are talking about nectar, you're not talking about sugar water. Right. What we know about nectar right now is so much more complex. It is literally a witch's brew of amino acids and so many yeasts that it can even be alcoholic, right. as well as chemicals like caffeine and nicotine. And the animals will use it for specific things. And the flowers are using it to, you know, manipulate the animals. And it's literally like they've shown that certain bees will self-medicate by visiting certain flowers in order to drink that nectar. And so you can't just look at a dandelion with a bee on it and say, thumbs up that system is working, right? To me, that's the same thing as looking at Burger King and being like, that's a healthy restaurant. Right, it's food. <laughs> exactly, it is food and people go there, but the reasons are not good, right? There's not a good good situation for anyone. Yeah. And so again, like, is it better? Having dandelions is certainly much better than dumping a bunch of toxins on your land. That is obviously inexcusable, but it is nowhere near as beneficial to wildlife as planting the plants that they've literally evolved to pollinate. In addition, it's not a one-way street here. Like we're not just trying to support the pollinators. We also want the plants to thrive. And pollination is a necessary process of plant reproduction. And so if these pollinators are, say, imagine that there's this exotic plant that shows up and everyone's like, wow, so much sugar, let's go. And as a response, a bunch of native plants don't get pollinated. That's also bad, right? Mm -hmm. Like we want the native animals pollinating the native plants. These are dynamics. It's not about any one individual organism. It's about the systems between and among all of us that are the important thing to try to protect and encourage. Right, right. I believe you've written and spoken about this where you can sort of, you can have kind of the exotic in your garden if there's that one thing that you have to have, right? Oh, totally. But do you have like a, a rough rule of thumb that you recommend in terms of like percentages for native to non-native? I'm 80-20 in all things in my life. Like I generally, <laughs> like even if it's just like emptying a wheelbarrow full of mulch, I find yeah. that people spend so much energy getting out that like last little bit of mulch that I'm just like, just let it stay there. Yeah. <laughs> you are expanding like more of your energy on that tiny little bit. And anyways, tangentially, no. <laughs> but that I definitely have peonies and the beautiful hybrid roses. And I have a, an amorphophallus in my garden that is one of my most prized, most well-loved plants. You know, of course, would never plant anything that's invasive. And I don't yeah. think anyone should. And I'm also really terrified of the sort of culture of bringing in new plants. I always find that to be pretty dangerous, but I think in general, like peonies aren't hurting anything and they bring us so much joy and there's a lot of history for people there. There's no reason to go after exotic plants, right? I don't think yeah. that that's actually helpful and it's, it's obviously hurtful to inviting as many people as possible into this movement. 
I think there's a healthy medium there. And it might be, I think David Tallamy talks about 30, 70, and everybody can have their own numbers. But I do think we need to stay vigilant against exotic plants and remove them where they need to be removed. I find this to be, you know, yet another example of one of these kind of classically American conversations about individual action as opposed to systemic change. Mm -hmm. When I'm from Connecticut and like you can buy Barberry in Connecticut, you can buy burning bush and like they've decimated the forests yeah. there and we're talking about yelling at your neighbor for planting xyz the problem is the nurseries and the problem is the state regulations of those nurseries and so we want to take action as people to change how our land is welcoming wow. to supportive ecologically supportive organisms then the thing to do is to go after big nurseries and get the regulations nailed down as opposed to like having twitter wars about dandelions right? <laughs> right, like, right there's stuff we can actually do and we should focus there yeah and can you speak a little bit about lawns because i think you you know the park obviously acknowledges that it's a place for people um, but how can you make that if you're not you know ready to rip it out yet how can you make it sort of the most ecologically friendly lawn you know space so as an ex punk rocker teen I love the kill your lawn movement. It's like so yeah, like, cool, uh, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I don't actually agree with it at all. I think that lawns are really important for people. And I think that lawns are, I like to say, it's like the habitat for people, right? Mm -hmm. Like when people see a lawn and a landscape, they're like, that's where I get, I get to go. That's yeah. where I belong. <laughs> and we want that. Like we desperately want that. Do lawns need to be a toxic mess? Absolutely not. Do they need to be a monoculture? No, there's ways that we can diversify them and welcome people into those spaces and make them more beneficial. And of course, shrink them, right? Like yeah. absolutely shrink those lawns. Like, it's amazing how we've sort of taken this British tradition and just like many American things, blown it up absolutely <laughs> massive. And we can do this bigger. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And you, so all of that excess needs to be dialed way, way back. But the idea that we're against something and it's bad. I don't know how helpful that language is. I mean, maybe for some people, maybe like, I'm sure there's lots of punk rock gardeners out there who are like, yeah, and that's cool. Like that's, you know, this is a war that needs to be fought on many fronts. And so whatever messages are helpful, but there's a lot, um, Margaret Roach just did a whole story in the times that was wonderful about plant alternatives for lawns. And there's a huge conversation, lots of research happening around native grasses for lawns. And so it doesn't need to be against it. We can still have our cake and eat it too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. An article that you shared in your newsletter about no Monet, that it's sort of, again, a UK import and that it's not exactly right for us because as you say, dandelions are not actually native. <laughs> Totally. And so even though we wouldn't, you wouldn't know it, you know, kind of in terms of how you think of this, it is. Yeah, I think Novo May, I'm imagining is a net benefit. Again, like there's a lot of cynics out there and it's not perfect, right? But yeah. what it is, is a gateway. It's an action. It's And it's getting people to take action yeah. to like help wildlife. Like that alone, that you're getting people to take one step is incredible. Yes. And then there's another step in which they're sacrificing a classical landscape aesthetic and changing their view of what is beautiful to invite in more wildlife. Again, huge victory there, huge victory. Yeah. And it makes it so much easier to have the next conversation once somebody's already taken those steps. I think I said in the newsletter that my mom sent me a photo of a swallowtail butterfly on an ajuga 
super invasive plant that she loves and has in her lawn. And it was their butterfly was visiting me, a juga flower. And I was able to say, okay, mom, here's Zizia. I'm going to give you this plant. And no, you don't like yellow. It's fine. We're going to like hide it in the back. But now you're actually supporting the life cycle of that butterfly and you'll have more of them in your landscape. And so I just see, I see it as a huge opening to start these conversations. Yeah. Well, and also how wonderful that so many people one might, you know, in the ecological lens might disregard as is not caring because you see the lawn, how many people wanted to do something, you know, just sort of spontaneously took the sun and said, yeah, I'll let it grow long. You know, it's, it's yeah. yeah. And then how maybe open they are to, yeah, the yellow flower in the back sort of. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that that really describes so many people that the, the person who wants to do good, but doesn't know how to. Yeah. And I think, especially when we're in a moment where thanks to COVID and, you know, again, aforementioned apocalypse, there's so many people who are getting into garden, like tens of millions of people have just gotten into gardening to grow food or to help wildlife or to save the bees, whatever that means. And we need to be this welcoming force, but not just welcome, but, you know, channeling them in the direction of the things that they desperately want to know. And so I'm very hopeful that these podcasts and these articles and all of the work that we're doing reach these new gardeners, because I think there's so many people who want to help out. Yeah, yeah. And where do you think Brooklyn Bridge Park or even sort of the new landscaping movement fits in kind of the history of New York parks and landscaping? I I was in New York when the High Line was opened and well, first it was when it opened, you know, it was, you couldn't even walk. It was like so thronged with people because it was like a green space where you could sit, you know? <laughs> and then, and also I think it has that same element of training one's eye, you know, that Pete Oldolf's planting was such is so instrumental in sort of the way we think about now about gardens and what to leave and, you know, all of that. Absolutely. I think they're all over the world. The post-industrial landscape architecture movement is happening all over the world and has been going on for a while. And I think the Highline is the biggest and brightest star in that movement. And we were certainly under development when that was happening and this would have happened without it. But a lot of what the Highline brought was financial. Like it really allowed developers to understand how valuable, just like straight dollar wise, how valuable green space and well-designed green space was to their interests. And that's controversial. And again, absolutely should be controversial because a lot of times there are dynamics in which developers are deciding where and how public parks are designed rather than the public, right? And so that's a hard a hard dynamic. And I think the Highline kind of started that. And then we carried that forward as well. There's a lot of real estate has really seen numbers skyrocketing around projects like this. And that is, of course, difficult for residents uh, who've been here for ages. But from a garden perspective, from the plants perspective, I think that Pito Dolph is wonderful, like maybe the best living garden designer and a friend of mine. And he undoubtedly introduced North American native plants to North Americans. Right? It's the funniest, <laughs> so funniest situation. And part, I'm not a nationalist by any stretch of the imagination, but part of me is like, really? Like, yeah. <laughs> we need something. <laughs> like, have you seen this? It's a cone flower. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And like, for years, and even this year, like Chelsea, Chelsea Gardens is just like all of our plants. I know. Just like, <laughs> why can't we do this? Why does Germany have every Astra cultivar and we like can't even get them? And you can't get them. I know. <laughs> yeah. So, so frustrating. And it's like Astra Nova Angeli. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. So 
but he really did. And that's like so much gratitude, right? Like, thank you for doing what we were unable to, to get done. And so like, certainly just the inherent beauty of these plants was put on display in a way that was totally undeniable. And, you know, I had a conversation with my dad ages ago, and this was way long ago when I was designing a garden for him. And I was like, we're going to put in a bunch of native plants. And he was like, why would I put in a plant that just grows for free? Oh, interesting. Like, yeah, I just yeah. couldn't understand why you would buy something right. like that. And so it's, and now of course he's, he's all in, but like in the yeah. beginning it's like, and I, I get that. And yeah. so it took a big gestalt shift to like recognize inherent value in all of these things. And then I think Pete, even more than that, you know, and just beyond the plants, he's one of the first people to start really changing the way gardens are managed in ways to support wildlife, right? It's not just about planting. It's about what we do. And many times the biggest inhibition to quality habitat is the disturbance of gardeners, right? Us stomping around and weeding and mulching and all that stuff. That's going to harm a lot of the wildlife in our gardens. And so Pete just saw the beauty in standing grasses in October and seed heads in February and just purely on an aesthetic level recognized that this was something that we should all be appreciating. And so suddenly it became acceptable for the first time to leave seed heads up throughout the winter. And that was humongous. And not only for people, because we got extra beauty in our lives, undeniably, but also for the birds who all rely on those seed heads as they migrate through or try to overwinter. It's so it's just fascinating to see how quickly those things can can really change. Yeah, well, and, and just as you were saying, that wonderful relationship between what we are drawn to, sometimes being shown, you know, what could be in the back marsh that we're ignoring, but but what we're drawn to being so intimately connected to what is necessary for ecological health is that the way that all of those pieces are, you know, leaving seed heads are going to be, yeah, that sort of future, right? That's that's how the seeds will fall. And again, it's sort of surprising that we need to be, to a certain extent, like shown its beauty, but it, it reminds yeah. me of how the movement towards public planting more, I'm thinking like municipal buildings being evergreen and that really low maintenance, you just trim them. Sometimes they blossom, usually they don't. And just leave yeah. it at that, that it's actually affects the observer's understanding of plants and plant life because we expect them to bloom and we expect them to sort of lose their leaves. You know, we expect sort of these almost subconsciously and that it actually, yep. you're sort of, oh, oh, your form of observing is affected by, yeah, that it's something we didn't even realize we were missing kind of yeah. when, when like betting schemes left. <laughs> yeah, so true. I, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, I have a friend, Pennington Marshall, who was recently talking about how the impetus behind a lot of those landscapes that you were talking about is also like just whatever is easiest and most profitable for landscapers to, you know, maintain. And that that drives the design of yeah. those landscapes. And then that's like what we're stuck with and what we you know, so many, so many people think of as like the natural world. Yeah, yeah. Well, and do you think because maintenance is intimately connected with the success of, of this kind of planting scheme, is it something that you think could be transferred? I think I used the example of a municipal building in Kansas, like is it, you know, or, or in California, yeah. you know, our concern in California is drought, obviously, yeah. but it means that I think a lot of our planting now is that sort of xeriscape, like it's a bunch of aloes in a row with like bare but mulched space in between. Yeah. And you're like, there's no one living there either. You know, like, like it's, it's like not, a, not necessarily a native aloe and it's, you know, like totally. not, not blossoming. Yeah. So 
100% doable, like yeah. 100% doable to design and manage landscapes that are way less input than your like classical, you know, bank front orange mulch, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. <laughs> but the problem with it is that we're not going to get there treating landscapes the way that we currently do and treating people the way that we currently do because the there's no way to have a complex ecologically rich garden without an invested educated uh well-trained person managing that land even if it's just to design and care for it for a year and then walk away forever yeah you absolutely must have that person doing those jobs and and they can't be making minimum wage or less and they can't be being exploited the way so many landscape workers are today we really do have a problem still in horticulture and landscaping especially with the exploitation of people you know and all those like the design and all those things are tied together with like what's the absolute least amount of experience a person can have to walk in the door and do this work and so it's all tied together so the first thing really needs to be the people there's in this realm in this ecological gardening realm there's a strain of misanthropy right of people who think like people are a cancer and like yeah whatever the world would be better off without us and that kind of or even people who are like this is my garden stay away i don't want people anywhere near it and i just really want to strongly emphasize that even from a tactical perspective, that's just like a bad strategy. We really do need to welcome people in if we have any hope of making it throughout the next century, right? right. Like we need people to embrace these landscapes, embrace these connections. We need to respect each other in ways we are currently not doing in order to like create. It's not just about the plants and animals, right? It's about really recreating and fostering a more healthy environment for everyone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And are there any favorite projects or even memories from Brooklyn Bridge Park that you have in sort of the way that you, you know, kind of reach that balance? Hmm, that's a hard one. Or even any favorite animal plantings that you yeah. kind of fostered. Yeah. Like I think that a big, a big part of it for me is is absolutely like the animal discoveries. Yeah. Where the gardeners will like find a new thing or like the red-winged blackbirds that have been sort of visiting the wetlands for years decided to nest. Or we tried to attract hummingbirds for like, it took, I think, seven years before oh. the first hummingbird started flying through the park and using the flowers and whatnot. And like those moments are really what it's all about. But it's also like, I don't know, like gardeners clearing snow and like laughing and whooping it up and they do it. It's so much of it is about the people. And then I think one of the things that I'm most not proud is the wrong word, but I think like grateful for the fact that this team has managed to accomplish is I think management strategies that are truly respectful, that we really feel like can help people thrive in a very difficult environment and, you know, doing really hard work. Like, as we all know, gardening can just be absolutely backbreaking and we're in very hot weather, sometimes on one-to-one grades, 35 feet up in the air. It can be a hard job. And so I think those are the things that I'm, I'm most proud of is like the ways to support the people coming up with the structures that we did in order to make this a good environment for everyone. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. And do you have any recommendations for something that a home gardener might look to as they're implementing or adding to their garden? Would it just be, you know, 
native flowers or shrubs and also yeah any tips you have kind of in thinking about the garden sure there's so many good guides so if you're if you haven't already like read Doug tell me and gotten initiated that's a great place to start although it's more of a philosophical endeavor as opposed to like a set of instructions but when you get to the point where you're ready to put stuff in the ground there's really excellent tools now from the Audubon Society and the Xerxes Society where you can plug in your zip code and wildflower.org you can plug in your zip code and get lists of native plants that specifically support the animals that you want to support there's also eco regions are a really wonderful tool to use when you're trying to figure out what to plant a lot of us learned to use hardiness zones uh, which are just based on like how much coldness a section yeah. <laughs> gets and whether or not the plants can survive in the coldness. And what ecoregions look at are plant communities based on underpinning geological and ecological conditions. And you can now go through the EPA and generate lists of plants for your, first of all, you can find your ecoregion and then generate plant lists that are specific to your ecoregion. And so those are all, all absolutely great things to get familiar with. Fantastic. We will link to all of those in the show notes. Um, I'm always laugh at the hardiness zone because since it's based on zip code, I'm up on a hill and it's like dramatically different from the rest of my code. That's and so we are, funny. We're truly, I mean, multiple digits sort of warmer or colder depending on the season. So it's certainly things can live here, but the amount of sun they get, or obviously, you know, for us, the moisture and, you know, and, and what's, what's actually helpful cool. for the plant to live. It's yeah. It's really helpful to see those. Yeah. You've mentioned a few books. What do you take your influences from today? Where are you sort of looking and watching? I mean, I'm really excited for the next generation of people to come up. You know, I think that the next generation of garden designers and landscapers are just going to be absolutely fantastic because as much as there, there is really good garden design in North America now, which I don't think is always been the case, but there's wonderful designers out there, but not a lot of it has really got the point of like art. Yeah. From my perspective, especially within the native plant realm, I, although there is plenty of instances, it's not like a broad phenomenon. And so I think that's the most exciting thing to me is when real, real beauty starts to enter, enter these realms. Those, those are the things that I really look forward to in the future. Yeah. I also think that, you know, as this movement grows and we all just collectively share knowledge going to get easier and easier and more and more interesting to just work to figure out you know how to support these amazing creatures and if anyone has any information out there they want to share with me i will like so happily listen to it and and share it with others books it's it's a hard one i always love you know robin wall kimmer because mm-hmm. the main thing that i take from her is just this importance of learning from plants rather than learning about them Mm -hmm. because so much of this knowledge doesn't exist and in books and there just really aren't instructions it's very important for us all to be careful observers and then share that information with each other but of course that's what gardening is all about right it's all about that level of observation and experimentation yeah how do you involve your son in the garden and then how do you recommend that we introduce kids my instinct is to say city kids especially but i also think it's sort of amazing how how many kids are indoors no matter where they live, you know? <laughs> oh, so true. So I've got an eight-year-old and my husband is at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden as, and he's an arborist. And so our son has like no idea that everyone's parent isn't like working yeah. in a park or a public garden. And we've always tried to figure out like, how do we expose him and like teach him the wonder of these the beautiful worlds that we live in without like shoving it down his throat to the point where he's a teenager who wants nothing to do with it. Yeah. But we try by 
you know, he's always invited, but he doesn't have any chores he has to do in the garden. And he loves it, right? Like what mm. kid doesn't love to dig and mow and sweeping has always been a big, yes. you know, <laughs> we all like argue over who gets to sweep. Yeah. But I think in the city, it's actually, I'm a, I'm a country person raising a kid in the city. And I was really worried when we first had our son, because we were like, how are we going to expose him to nature? But it's, we found that it's actually a lot easier in the city because when I was growing up, I just saw a forest, right? Like an individual tree wasn't a character unless it was like my climbing tree. Yeah. But in the city, trees are so isolated. They're like in a tree pit and yeah. an oak tree is kind of a character and a maple tree is a character. And just by simple fact that there's so few of them and so few birds, again, they're like, there's a flock of pigeons. There is a starling. You really can teach the names and the behaviors mm -hmm. In a much easier way than you can in a more rural or natural setting. So my son is super into it. He's he's all about it. He like names every raptor in the city lightning and has like a little bird journal that he's <laughs> constantly observing animals in and tries to like save every you know worm in the garden. Yes. <laughs> so I think it's I think it's a wonderful thing. I think raising city kids and to be future gardeners is uh hopefully i mean we'll see i'll report back when he's a teenager and right. tell you tell you a few rebels well report back a teenage and then report back a few years later because that's yeah. you know that's the pendulum <laughs> right <laughs> totally. what do you do do you have good strategies we're still very much at the beheading of flowers and making potions but it's absolutely cool. like yeah that you know everyone wants to dig everyone wants to sweep and learn the names like it's amazing yeah. how learning names make something real Yep. And I think more in a space right now where, yeah, it's like they know that it's something of value to their parents. So they're sort of interested in like seeing how it works. So yeah, I'm just cool. hoping that the, the proverbial seed has been planted, but I think it's, <laughs> yeah, try and also try to try to, you know, step back and be like, it's okay. It'll live again. It doesn't yeah. need all the blossoms. You know? <laughs> we can make another potion. <laughs> <laughs> and I was wondering how, you know, sort of you had this really unique role during the pandemic because you had the sort of place where everyone could be safe. <laughs> and I was wondering how that sort of either changed or reinforced your understanding of the role in gardens in our lives. Yeah, I think we were fortunate enough, the horticulture team was fortunate enough to get sent home uh, during the early days of the pandemic. And I have to apologize for there's like some really boisterous music outside. It's one of the wonders of Brooklyn, honestly, yeah. is that like someone's going to drive by blaring awesome music, but it's happening. So uh, it was amazing. I mean, it was terrifying and horrible, but at least we were safe and we were able to use that time to take a lot of the information we had collected and organize it into databases and then make those publicly available. So if you go onto our website, you go to the horticulture page, you can find databases on 250 native plants that thrive in cities. You can find our database of weeds and all of the information we've gathered around weeds, including things like whether or not garlic mustard seeds are light germinated. And that kind of information is really important when you're trying to figure out, am I going to mulch this and get rid of it? Do I need, you know, if, when you're thinking about like real long-term strategies for weed eradication, you need to know that minutiae of information and it is very difficult to find. So we tried yeah. to collect it, put it in this database and then make that publicly available. There's also information on our mulching practices. There's information on the birds and bees and butterflies at the park and all of the plant connections that we found and how we alter our gardening practices to support them. They're all very rough documents. They're all working documents. If you find any errors, again, please let us know. We will correct them. And yeah, we just... 
again, are just trying to make our, the resources that help us do this work to share them with other people. Fantastic. Since this is your last few weeks in this season, can you share sort of anything that is coming, that will be coming up in the gardens that you remember? This is going to be a bold statement, but I think this is the best New York City fall park for fall flowers, fall color, fall design. It's so gorgeous here in September and October. And that is always just an absolute joy. And that's when you get to see the butterfly migration too for monarchs. And so it's very funny to see monarchs migrate through uh, New York City, because if you go to places like Manhattan, they're literally just like flying from uptown to downtown (laughs) and like flying along the sidewalk. And it's really cute. And then the park, it's the same thing. They like start at the north end of the park and then bump their way, like visiting a flower, just like migrating down the park. And then it's like this endangered wonder of the world just like cruising yeah. through your through your landscape and so we have areas of the park that we've tried to plant with we've tried to create monarch way stations where of course they need milkweed to reproduce but when they're migrating they really like specific types of nectar and so we've have big plantings just specifically for those migratory monarchs as they travel through Oh, brilliant. I would love them to do some bedding of those along Fifth Avenue too, because it seems like that would be, <laughs> they could use it. Totally. <laughs> and then the question that, that I ask everyone, based on your experiences with gardening, how do you think we can bring more people into the garden? Oh, good question. Oh, so this is your question. <laughs> <laughs> I think being welcoming is a big one, right? And not, not trying to set up any barriers for people. That sounds obvious, but it's really not the case. And a lot of folks are always like, well, you have to pass these five tests and you have to already be on board with these philosophies in order to welcome them in. But I think beauty is such a draw. It's really important. Some folks also don't think that beauty is that important in ecology. And I think we all respond to it, including insects, right? They like literally designed the flowers. Like it has to be gorgeous. And I think that a lot of the things we find beautiful, a lot of animals also find beautiful. And so I think just showing people the potential of these rich ecosystems to, you know, support them if it's visually, if it's spiritually, if it's listening to these beautiful noises at night or smelling the, the smells, I just think that's the draw, right? Is like showing people this stuff, showing them that they can also take action to create a better world. I think that's a big one as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And I, again, I'm really, really excited to see what you do with this fellowship. You've shared so much incredible information already. And so it's to have you with like turbocharged communication power will be, <laughs> yeah. will be really wonderful. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. Garden People is produced with generous support from our sponsor, Plant Gem. Plant Gem sells unique plants you won't find anywhere else for a garden that reflects your personal style. Find them at www.plantgem.com. As always, thank you for supporting the companies that support this podcast. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love it if you left a review as it helps other garden people find us. You'll find links for everything we've discussed in the show notes or on our website. To get early access to our guest list and information about bonus episodes, gardening tips from our guests, and more, sign up for the newsletter at violetearstudio.com.